Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the crucifixion of the warrior God. Not the book per se, but the interview in which Boyd explains his book, the premises of his book, and his approach to the Bible. What the crucifixion of the warrior God is, is it's a hermeneutics book. It's a how do you read the Bible book. What Boyd is trying to do is he's trying to present a new framework from which we reinterpret texts of the Old Testament and even the New Testament in light of the crucifixion of Christ. In the actual book, he compares it to the magic eye that, uh, you know, you you look at those uh, pictures that pop out and you have to look at it in a certain way. And only if you look at it in a certain way does the picture pop. And he states that he realized from reading Origen one of the church fathers, remember, Origen was engaged in uh, philosophizing the Bible, spiritualizing the text, reinterpreting the texts in light of what he thought was proper theology. He rejected the face value reading of a lot of the texts. So this is Origen's hermeneutic, and Boyd really latches onto this hermeneutic, and he says so. He says that he takes Origen's advice to heart. He writes this, Origen rather advised disciples to humble themselves before God as they held the unresolved conundrum in mind, all the while remaining confident that all scripture, including material that appears unworthy of God, is divinely inspired. In time, Origen taught the Spirit will enable us to see beyond the surface appearance of things where the conundrum resides and find the resolution in a deeper, more profound, revelatory truth. And this is from the actual book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. He later goes on to write, The claim I will be defending throughout this work is that there is a way of interpreting Scripture's violent portraits of God that not only resolves the moral challenges they pose, but that also discloses how these portraits bear witness to God's nonviolent, self-sacrificial, enemy-loving character definitively revealed on Calvary. So let's hear from Boyd in this interview that we're going to be referencing. That one of the main things for Christians, it was true in my own life, and I think it's true of Christians in general, that one of the main things that pollute our picture of God are the Old Testament violent portraits of God. Uh, you know, that we, 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 see, we say, yeah, God's beautiful as he's revealed in Jesus Christ, but there's this suspicion, like, what about the genocide, you know, and he slaughters everybody and all this other stuff, and, and that can't help but to some degree compromise uh, the beauty of your picture of God and therefore the passion of your love for God. So I'm trying to offer a way of interpreting the Old Testament violent text that's such that people can see how and why they ought to base all of their picture of God and can base all their picture of God on, on Jesus Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. So we see what's going on here, and I might sound a little critical in this segment, but basically his hermeneutic is we go look at the Old Testament, and any time we find something that we find morally objectable as modern Americans, we have to then reinterpret that in light of this uh, crucifixion. I'll talk about my objections to the cruciform hermeneutic later, just the actual assumptions built into that premise. But I'd also like to point out the fact modern American values on life are kind of unique in history. We're living in this age of amazing prosperity. And an article I would point to is on the blog Experimental Theology. And he writes this. I've read some of the most scandalous passages in the Bible to men in prison or with the poor. And for whatever reason, they haven't blinked an eye. 
With liberal, educated audiences, such passages would completely hijack the conversation. He goes on to write, This threw me for a loop at first. I'd get to some passage in the Bible that had something horrible in it, and I'd wait, hunkered down and prepared for an inevitable barrage of questions and outrage. And nothing would happen. On the margins, at least, in my experience, people seem perfectly comfortable with the blood and violence and wrath. The Old Testament God isn't so much a scandal in these social locations. So what this is illustrating is that there's some subjectivism built into these Old Testament evaluations of God. Some people are perfectly fine with these depictions, and some people, they, they lose their handle. Oh, God flooded the earth and killed kids. Outrageous. Oh, God's a moral monster. So we see these things are subjective. So whose morality do, you, do we judge the Old Testament God by? Do we judge it by the Greg Boyds of the world who grew up in liberal enclaves, sheltered from all the hardships of the world? Or do we judge it by the morality of those in prison who have been exposed to harsher truths of this world, the poor who have dealt with a lot of hard things in their lives? Whose morality do we use to judge God of the Old Testament? Does Boyd's hermeneutics have an answer? And it might. He might have an answer somewhere in his book. I haven't read his entire book, so he might answer it. And everyone might just be screaming at their computer listening to me. Oh, just read his book. But I've listened to a lot of Greg Boyd's sermons. I've listened to his teachings. I've read other books of his. And it seems subjective. Seems very subjective to me. I really don't want this podcast to start off on a negative note about Greg Boyd. I think he does a lot of good stuff. I think he has a lot of good teachings. He has a lot of good books. And one thing I really do like about Crucifixion of the Warrior God is he lays out his hermeneutics on the front end. He says, I look at critical scholarship, biblical scholarship, and their face value reading the text, trying to read it in ancient Near East delights. And I, I kind of reject that face value reading. That's just not how I read the Bible. So he's upfront and he's honest and he's telling the audience how he's going to read the Bible. And then it's up to the audience whether to decide whether that's a good way to read the Bible or not. Imagine if the Calvinists did this. That would make debates a lot easier. They'd say, well, we have our theology, and any text in the Bible that we read, we read it in light of this theology. Lay down your principles. Lay down your hermeneutics before you start. Boyd does it. At least he's honest about it. When someone's honest about their hermeneutics, it makes conversations a lot easier. When the Calvinists say that, their reading of the Bible is the straightforward and obvious meanings. That's not true. That's just it's not true. And so then you debate them about what the actual text says. But if they say, well, we have this hermeneutics, uh, what's the debate going to be about? It's going to be like, okay, well, well, I like to read the Bible for what it says, and you like to read it in light of your theology. Um, that's just our disagreement. Have a nice day. I mean, you could debate about hermeneutics, whether or not it's very rational to presuppose your theology before reading the Bible, but uh, I don't think they want to engage in that debate. And I'm fine to leave well enough alone, as long as they're acknowledging their premises. Like the Thomas J. Ords of the world, he says, this is how I read the Bible, and I take it progressively, and I take the parts of the scripture that work for my system, and I kind of reject those parts of scripture that do not work for my system. He's honest, he's open, conversation's over. Believe it or not, some Calvinists are open and honest as well. They'll also claim that scripture is progressive and the Old Testament depictions of God were inaccurate. 
And those people, at least, you could have a conversation with them. What gets me is when those people are in a conversation with you and another Calvinist, and you're debating another Calvinist about the face value reading of the text, and they'll side with the other Calvinist, even though they believe that your reading of the text is more accurate for those who wrote it and to whom it was written. That's like, then that's then it's an intellectual integrity thing. It's like, come on, back me up. You're on my side. You're on my side. You're just siding with the Calvinists because you're fellow Calvinists. Kind of a tangent, but Boyd is open and honest with his hermeneutics, and you, either you like his hermeneutics or you don't like his hermeneutics. Continuing on with the interview. So you mentioned Old Testament violence. How big a problem do you see this really being? I think it's huge. Uh, People have lost their faith on this. Uh, I just got a letter from a pastor some time ago who was telling me that he's on the verge of losing his faith because he finally decided to take an honest look at all of the stuff that's in the Bible. We tend to kind of ignore it. It's the nasty stuff and not pleasant. We skip over it. But when you bring it all together, it's, it's impressively bad. <laughs> um, you know, there are, there are over a thousand passages in the Old Testament where God is depicted as either commanding or as engaging in violence. And some of the violence is, is really horrific. Um, you have portraits of God uh, where God says, I want you to go into uh, the land of Canaan and slaughter everybody and show no mercy. In fact, he, he threatens, if anyone shows any mercy, I'm going to, you know, slay them. Um, so, and, and, go, and slaughter everything that breathes, every man, woman, child, infant, and animal. You've got that command repeated 37 times uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and some of the stuff is, is you know, just ugly in other ways. Like, for example, uh, in a couple passages, he says, slaughter everybody. But if you find a virgin among the people you're supposed to slaughter that, that's attractive, uh, you can keep her as war booty. And in one passage, you're allowed to marry her. Um, but if she doesn't please you, then you can turn her out into the streets. So it's like a trial marriage. You go, what is going on with you? Yeah, these Old Testament genocide passages are very interesting. One thing that's uh, unique about the Bible is that it doesn't command holy war. You know, like in Islam, you you conquer the infidel, you convert the infidel. There was never that in the Bible. You never conquered people to convert them to Yahwehism. And it was always for moral reasons. Always for moral reasons. So Deuteronomy 20, 18 gives one justification for these conquests. And he's, he's basically kill them all that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Leviticus 18.24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations that I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. And here's the list of what's happening per Leviticus 18. Incest, sex with both a mother and a daughter, sex with menstruating women, adultery, sacrificing children, homosexuality, bestiality, murder, and sexual sins, basically. I always find the sex with menstruating women very interesting because you don't hear much about that in lists of sins in modern times, but it was a big deal. And God often sought to destroy Israel just for that fact, that they would have sex with menstruating women. Later, God judges Israel just like he judges the people of the land that he expelled. And a lot of it's for the exact same reason. And one of them, it's, it's uh, listed in Ezekiel 22. Yeah, they're having sex with women during their period time. 
But Moses tells Israel before they go into the promised land, he says, don't think it's due to your own righteousness that you're getting this promised land. It's because God is judging the inhabitants. God has seen their wickedness, their vileness, their moral sins. It's not their idolatry. It's not worship of other gods. It's actual moral sins. That's why he's judging them. And Boyd compares this spousal thing where you find the eligible young ladies of this nation you're defeating, and then you can marry them if uh, that behooves you, if, if you think they're attractive. And, and remember, their original command is to go in and just kill everything. So they go into these countries and they say, we're killing you all, except for you, young lady, if you want to be my wife, um, then we don't have to kill you. And uh, further stipulation, if it doesn't work out, then we'll just let you go and we still not kill you. So dying in the slaughter, trial marriage. I'm sure most of the young ladies opted for the trial marriage. But one thing that I find interesting is like during Vietnam, my dad was deployed to Japan. And that's a pretty good place to be deployed to during Vietnam when people are dying, right? You go to Japan instead. And that's a good place to be. I'm a Vietnam veteran, served in Japan. But while he's there, like, like the Japanese mothers, they would like throw their kids at American servicemen because they saw the American servicemen as a way out of poverty, a way to improve the livelihood of their girls. Would Boyd label this rape as well? I don't see why. I'm not saying war rape is good or anything or, or physically coercing women to marry you is a good idea. But look at the situation. Look what's going on. And then don't impose our modern American standards on ancient Israel and ancient history, ancient history. It's been common in history, very common in history for people to sell themselves into slavery themselves. They've enslaved themselves because for most of human history, life has been very miserable, bleak. People starved to death and people couldn't take care of themselves. They couldn't feed themselves. And so their best alternative was selling themselves into slavery. So is all slavery bad, even if the participants are willing? If the alternative is death? There's modern moral crusaders who are like, oh, these countries are using child sweatshop labor. And so then they get those countries to impose child labor laws. And then what do those children do? Their alternative is starving to death, digging through garbage, begging, and prostitution. Congratulations, your moral crusading just turned a bunch of kids into prostitutes. That's just an example of modern American moral standards which have grown up in this, this, this uh, insulated world of prosperity just being forced down other people's throats. So if you can't tell, one of my main criticisms with Boyd, of course, is his moralizing. What he sees as a problem, I don't quite see as a problem. And even if it was a problem... Rejecting it because we find it problematic, that's a, that's a logical fallacy, right? That's the moralistic fallacy, aptly named. So this segment is going to break into my main criticism of Boyd's beliefs. And this podcast is, is a little bit critical. It's not really just a review and a restating of his beliefs, Boyd's beliefs. Like usually when I cover other open theists, it's just restating what they believe and why they believe it. This one's a little bit more critical. Someone asked me my own thoughts on the crucifixion of the warrior God, and here they are. So here's my main issue, and let's listen to Boyd. Philosophical, historical, personal reasons for thinking that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, and reasons for believing that he, he reveals what God really is like down to his very essence. And, God, and he reveals a God who loves like the rain shines, or like the rain falls and the sun shines. He loves indiscriminately. Uh, he'd rather die for his enemies than, than kill his enemies. 
So Jesus is a full revelation of God. Got good reasons for believing that. This next segment might seem a, a little bit mocking. I don't know, but here's Boyd's picture of Jesus from which he interprets the rest of the Bible. So he says, my premise is Jesus, and I use Jesus to interpret the rest of the Bible. And his picture of Jesus is loves unconditionally, um, just dies for his enemies, all niceness, rainbows and butterflies. But is that true? Is that the picture we see of Jesus in the New Testament? People have the tendency to just reinterpret Jesus into who they want. And Bart Ehrman, he points out this phenomenon to feminist scholars. Jesus is the ultimate feminist. And, you know, feminist, oh, our feminist Jesus, great. My wife was going to kill me one day because one of her friends posted a meme on Facebook about Jesus baking a cake for a homosexual wedding. What would Jesus do? And I was like, you know what? Jesus was a first century apocalyptic rabbi. I don't think he's in the business of baking cakes and affirming homosexual marriage. I just, I just don't see it in, in the data, what we have about Jesus. Jesus' main gospel, of course, was repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. And what did this kingdom look like? It looked like God coming back, the angels were the reapers, he'd send out the angels, would round up the wicked, and they'd kill them. It's a, he said, repent, reform your lives, start doing good works, start being good, reject sin, turn to Yahweh, because Yahweh is soon going to come back and judge and kill all the wicked people. This is explicitly stated in Matthew thirteen thirty-nine. Let's start at 38. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. This is Jesus talking, right, guys? Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here's my criticism of Boyd. Jesus wasn't preaching peaceful nonviolence. His message was one of ultraviolence. Yes, yes, the people of Israel, the followers of Yahweh, they themselves were not supposed to take up arms against the government. They were supposed to be passive. And the reason for this was because God was going to come back. God would bring his own armies to deal with the wicked. And there was going to be a mass slaughter involved. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. It's not niceness and butterflies. So here's Boyd's hermeneutic, and it's based on a peaceful, nice Jesus. When Jesus wasn't a very nice guy, per se, he'd, he'd say, oh, you're a Gentile? Well, you're a dog. Go away. And then the Gentile had to beg for his attention because he, was, he only came for the lost sheep of Israel. That was his primary mission, to restore God's covenant with the chosen people. And, of course, this, this task itself, it fails, and then Paul he, his ministry was opening up equal status with Gentiles. But if you read Jesus' teachings, it's very interesting. It's not about himself. Uh, worship me, I am the son of the father, and, and believe in Jesus and Jesus' death and crucifixion. No, no. Anytime people guessed who Jesus was, he said, don't tell anyone. Uh, you guessed accurately, don't tell anyone who I am. His message was not about himself. His message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a moral revolution. And this culminated, much like these Old Testament apocalyptic texts and even Revelation, in this day of the Lord, the day of judgment, in which 
there's going to be a massive upheaval and the wicked of the world would be judged and killed and the righteous would be exalted. It's ultraviolence. This is the stuff that resonated. This is what made John the Baptist very popular. Read John the Baptist's teachings. It's the same stuff. It's all about the wicked being killed. Who warned you of the wrath to come? John the Baptist preaches. Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, everyone, everyone in the Old Testament taught this day of the Lord. And Jesus continued on this tradition. Now I turn to this passage. He does quote this uh, Matthew passage in his book. And here's what he actually says about that passage I quoted about the reaper angels. And he only has it once in his book. And here's the context. Boyd writes, along the same lines, without denying the free will of people, Satan and or demons are understood to be influencing agents behind temptations and sowing of weeds. And then, then it references the Matthew 13 text. Gregory Boyd, I think you missed something. I think you missed something in that quote by Jesus. What are you missing that might not play into your narrative of a very nice and passive and, and unconditionally loving Jesus? Could it be, could it be... Oh yeah, that's it. The violent message of Jesus. Okay, that's that's the thing we're forgetting here. I really think Boyd's work could improve by interacting with texts such as Bart Ehrman's Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of a New Millennium or Rita Aslan's Zealot. The problem with a cruciform hermeneutic is people often just impose their ideas of who they want Jesus to have been. They impose that on the historical Jesus. And so it's almost like You're using the cruciform hermeneutic to reinterpret not only the Old Testament and Yahweh's actions in the Old Testament. You're using the cruciform hermeneutic to reinterpret Jesus's actions. It's a self-referential hermeneutic that's very subjective in nature. There's there's no basis. It's not really an open theist issue what Jesus's primary teaching was. You could be an open theist and agree with the Greg Boyd position or be an open theist and agree with my position. But if uh, you're interested in my position, I have an article on my other blog on reality is not optional called Jesus was not a pacifist. It talks about some of these texts. It talks about some of the Old Testament equivalences. And it also quotes Rita Aslan. And also got quotes by Ehrman scattered throughout my blog as well. But let's just go back to the interview and let Boyd himself explain his hermeneutic And you guys could judge for yourself whether that's something you want to buy into or if you'd like to explore another option. Because the Son of God is bearing the sin of the world. And and, and he's beaten beyond recognition. And so it's horrifically ugly. But if you look at it with the eyes of faith, it's supremely beautiful. Because you see through the ugly surface to the beauty of a God who stoops to bear the sin of his people. And if this is how God's always like, he's always been stooping to bear the sin of his people and therefore taking on a semblance, an appearance that mirrors that ugliness, just like he does in the cross. The surface mirrors our sin back to us. It's God stepping into it that reveals God to us. So also, shouldn't we read the Bible knowing that sometimes we might find ugly portraits of God and the surface of those ugly portraits, they tell us not what God's really like, they tell us a lot about the sin that God's bearing. This is how his people viewed him. But what re- reveals God to us in these pictures is that we know that God is like the heavenly missionary who is always willing to stoop, how, how, however low he needed to stoop, to bear the sin of his people. Because he's not a coercive God, he influences as much as he can, but there comes a point where he has to accept people as they are. 
and this is where his people were. And so he, he, he bears that sin, and therefore in the Bible, which is the inspired record of his covenantal faithfulness, he takes on an appearance that mirrors the sin of his people. When we come to those things, we have to exercise the same faith we exercise when we see the cross as the full revelation of God. See, past, see the sin surface? That reflects the sin of his people. But beyond that, we see a God, a humble God, who's willing to stoop to bear their sin. Boyd is taking a strategy that uh, we know more than the ancients did. They didn't know exactly these things about God that we now do know. And so Revelation is progressive. He even says so much. Let's listen. I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so I treat everything in there as factual. And so the judgments, I think, are factual. The judgments, the flood really happened, Sodom and Gomorrah really happened. All those things really happened. Um, I just believe that, that um, because of the cross, we, have got, we know more about God than they did. Uh, we've got this full revelation. And, and so that gives us, some, that gives us a, a, an ability to see things that Old Testament authors couldn't always see that well. Um, the most important thing is this. You know, on the cross, here we have a paradigm for what it looks like when God brings judgment on sin. And all of our thinking needs to be anchored in the cross. Uh, Jesus is bearing the sin of the world and the judgment that, that comes with that sin. But notice that God the Father didn't have to act violently to bring this judgment about. God the Father never lifted a finger towards Jesus. All the violence done towards Jesus uh, was done by, by wicked humans who are operating under the influence of principalities and powers. It was done by agents other than God. So there was violence in this judgment, but it wasn't God who did it. The only thing that God did to bring about this judgment on Christ was he allowed it. Um, he, he, he withdrew his protection and, and allowed these violent humans to do what they already wanted to do. Uh, and so you have this motif where it says uh, the, the Father delivered over Jesus to these wicked human beings. He gave him up. Um, and this is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's experiencing the inside of the forsakenness that is intrinsic to all sin. But the Father wasn't, wasn't violent. So as we read the Bible, as we read the Bible, we should do it through that lens. Interpret. We know that when God judges folks, all he needs to do is withdraw and allow sin to run its course and allow other agents who, are in, who want to act violently to do what they want to do. And as a matter of fact, when you start reading the Bible through that lens, you'll see it everywhere. And I've got about 200 pages on, on this thing. Uh, God's judgments are usually described as uh, him hiding his face, turning away, delivering people over to the consequences of their sin. Uh, you have all these passages about how your sin shall punish you. People bring their punishment on themselves. Your violence will ricochet back on you. And, and all that God does is he, this, he, works, he, he works mercifully to try to protect us from the consequences of our sin as long as possible. But if it ever gets to the point where he's simply enabling us in our sin and causing us to be further entrenched in our sin, then he withdraws with a grieving heart and allows us, he lets us go and says, you know, have it your way. Um, and then there's a, a, other agents that come in and carry out the violence that, that is a part of, of uh, God's judgments. Now, here's the thing, is that Old Testament authors didn't always see that clearly. You, you find it all over the place, but right alongside of that, you'll find that authors ascribe violence directly to God. And, and here's what's going on there, and this is part of what God has to accommodate, is that in the ancient Near Eastern world, 
The primary way you praise a deity is by ascribing violence to that deity. And the more violence, the more you're praising him, and the more macabre the violence, the more you're praising him. That's just, they, 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 they gloated, our God danced in the blood of your children, kind of thing, you know? It, it was just barbaric. But that's what everybody does. And these ancient Near Eastern countries, when they would go to war and slaughter another army, they knew that they did the slaughtering. But every one of them, without exception, attributes their violence to their God. Um, even though they know their God didn't actually do it. Uh, but it's insulting not to attribute your violence to God. Old Testament authors are conditioned by their culture, and this is the point where we have to see something they couldn't always see. That was about a four-minute clip from his interview. The whole interview you should probably listen to to understand where he's coming from, what he's thinking. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So there are a lot of times in the Bible where God punishes by just turning his face. Those are okay with Boyd. Boyd accepts that, and he thinks that all punishments of God in the Old Testament are of that type, that God's just turning his face. So when it says that God whistles for enemies to come devour Israel, that God actively courts Israel's enemies to come destroy them, he would reject that, and he would say that the ancient author is just trying to glorify God. It's it's just a praise. It's 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 kind of a figure of speech in a way accommodating language to combat Near Eastern perceptions about God's praise. Which is interesting because I'm pretty sure Boyd, I don't have the exact reference offhand, but he talks about accommodating speech in reference to Calvinism and how Calvinism disclaims everything's accommodating speech. How does one recognize the accommodating speech? And of course, Boyd would use the cruciform hermeneutic, where everything's interpreted in light of the cross, what he sees as the fundamentals of the cross, which itself is subjective. So it's this subjective theological standard, just like Calvinism does, that reinterprets everything in light of their theology. And as long as people are acknowledging their priors, they're acknowledging that they're rejecting the face value reading of the text and uh, laying out their standards of reading, you know, I'm fine with that. We could get along and have a good time. We just disagree on how to read the Bible. What I think would be a funny debate is if one of these followers of Boyd got into debate with a Calvinist, and it's just a back and forth. Whose God is better? My God is better than yours. No, my God is better than yours. It just turns into this, this my dad is better than yours debate. And that's always the debate Calvinists want to have. They come onto these uh, Facebook group pages, or even in real life, and they're just like, Maximum glory to God, and anything that uh, demeans what I see as His uh, glory, oh, that should just be that should just be denounced in the strongest terms, without any factual reasons why. Because everything's about my God being the best God I can imagine in my own head. <laughs> All right, good luck with that. But but Boyd's good. I like his work. Read God of the Possible. I'll try to read Crucifixion of the Warrior God all the way through and try to do a book review. It's kind of hard because I'm kind of spastic when I'm reading books. I'll like read a piece of one book, then I'll flip to another book, and it's just like book ADD. But I'll try to do it. I'll try. No promises. If you have any questions or comments, put that on godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.